Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today, I'll be speaking with Stephanie Summers of the Center for Public Justice about how to have better political disagreement, especially when the stakes are high. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a conversation that has been a long time coming. Um, I first got to know you actually at a retreat that we were at that Ann Snyder put on as part of the Breaking Ground project uh, a couple of years ago, right at the end of COVID. And I had not really, I'd sort of heard of the Center for Public Justice, but I, I hadn't really been tracking with your work. Um, but since then, I've been following you pretty closely, and I'm just really interested um, with the kinds of things that you're that you guys are tackling and the way that you're tackling them. Um, specifically with regard to these, this question, which is kind of the theme of both the current issue of the magazine and sort of of this podcast series, sort of, um, which is enmity. So you you guys at the Center for Public Justice have a particular approach to public discussion of really hot button topics and public policy work even on really hot button topics. Um, can you describe the work of the Center for Public Justice? Sure. Um, well, we do work to equip citizens and we do work to develop leaders in several different spaces, including leaders of faith-based organizations, uh, multi-faith, faith-based organizations, um, and political leaders as well. And then we also do work on shaping public policy. Um, and it's towards the end of serving God, advancing justice, and working for the transformation of public life. And specific to sort of the conversation about enmity, um, really, you know, a place where um, we are trying as much as we're able to contribute to the ordering of our common life in our nation in a way that would build peace rather than enmity. That is, it's quite a, um, a task that you've taken on, really. Um, what is, so the concept of public justice, you guys have a fairly dialed in and specific way of thinking about this. Can you describe that and, and what its, its kind of um, origins are? Yeah. So um, public justice as a concept, uh, we really talk about that as sort of the normative purpose for the work of government. Um, and really, that has a couple dimensions to it. The first is really ensuring justice for all. And that's not just for individuals, but it's also for society's diverse institutions that are not governmental, um, that are diverse in nature and in their God-given purpose. So, you know, just an example, right? Um, the ensuring justice for families and society, for businesses, for schools, for the kind of robust, you know, network of associational life out there, for worshiping communities, right? We could continue with the list. But the idea being that our common life is actually ordered inside these institutions and associations and government has a responsibility not just to treat us all as autonomous beings, um, but actually ensure justice for those associational expressions um, and the institutional expressions of our life. In addition, so sort of the second dimension, dimension of public justice, 
government has a responsibility to provide for kind of our life in common to do things that would ensure human flourishing that don't fall within sort of the remit of one of those other associations or institutions. So to give a concrete, it's kind of a silly example, but, uh, you know, the uh, fact that we have traffic lights to govern traffic so we don't run all into each other at every intersection, um, institutionally coordinating a network where we agree, hey, you know what, there's going to be traffic lights, and hey, red means stop and green means go, and yellow, you know, means yields, and all these other pieces that go along with that, um, that there is both a, an order being brought to that common life, and also the ability to enforce that order and adjudicate claims when there's some disordered thing that has happened as a result of someone not following that order. And then the third thing is a responsibility the government has to sort of adjudicate whether proactively or responsibly between institutions sort of in potential areas of conflict or in actual conflict. Um, so sort of this drive towards, you know, saying, hey, conflict is the, en you know, enmity and particularly the opposite of the peace that we would be looking for. And government has a responsibility and is authorized to, to deal with those challenges. So an example, just to make it a little more concrete, is um, how we treat families in society, right? And then how government intervenes in situations where child welfare is in danger, right? Government actually thinks about its normative purpose there not as, hey, the government is now going to raise kids because government's better at doing it, right? Government looks at it and says, how do we restore this family? And if we can't restore this family, how do we restore this child to a new family that can fulfill the responsibilities that families have for the education and nurture of children? Um, so you know, just one example of kind of adjudicating conflict that would happen um, there. Similarly, what are conflict situations that might happen between those institutions? So how do you deal with a challenge between um, businesses and families, for example, or between worshiping communities and, um, you know, claims on, you know, that, that abridge in some ways their religious freedom, right? So some of those things as, as responsibilities that government has. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me, based on what you've said, it does sound to me like your, your definitions of things like justice and equity and the common good do largely follow a kind of traditional Thomist understanding. They're rooted in the reformed kind of thinkers okay. and in particular take a lot of um, uh, their shape within the domain of Dutch reformed thinkers who, you know, um, like I say this about every person that ever gets referred to, right? We, people with feet of clay who didn't live up to their professed uh, ideals in all the ways we would have it done, um, but people who were looking at the ordering of the world and trying to be really clear around where the boundaries might be between the work of the state in ensuring justice and where um, institutions like families, for example, have their own types of justice to fulfill that are well outside of the reach of the state, right? And carrying that out into all kinds of other things actually requires, you know, a fair bit of work on the work of government to either say, 
you know, this is a limit we place upon ourselves, or this, you know, we're not going to mess with your religious freedom as an institution, for example. Um, but, you know, that really got developed most fully within kind of the Dutch reform thinkers. And so a lot of the kind of reformational theological frame is actually where mm -hmm. most of this is rooted. Okay, so probably Kuiper would be a big guy for you guys. Kuiper would be a big guy. And like I said, <laughs> feet of clay and a man who, you know, like I say this a lot at the beginning of talks on Kuiper, you know, Kuiper was a nativist racist. And it's not sufficient to say he was a man of his time um, because he was a person who was formed by scripture and actually confessed something he didn't live out well. Um, and like, we think that's really important to acknowledging kind of the the legacy of Kuiper, but then also looking at it and saying, yes, but the, how do you engage with and sort of redeem troubled theology by both acknowledging that reality and then acknowledging the reality of some of the insights that are super important in how the world's ordered. And I would also just say, you know, within kind of the broader scope, it is not as though we are ignoring, you know, millennia of Christian tradition, right? It's informed by all kinds of other thinking as well. But when you get to the particulars around something like the norm of public justice for government, you can't really find another thinker that got us there besides Kuiper. That sort of tradition is also where you're drawing the principled pluralist stance that you guys take from as well. Yeah, and that there's a, a broader set of thought within um, kind of the reformed worldview around uh, the kind of stance on principled pluralism, which really is rooted in the theological principle of common grace. So, you know, within the reformed thinkers, this thinking of there's salvation grace, um, and then there's also grace, which is, you know, God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And that God can actually work through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in people who are not regenerate, um, but work within their lives um, to help shape them so they can work for good. Um, and so that's kind of the piece there, how it loops into principal pluralist kind of policy position. Um, so our approach very much to public policy is to say, you know, we are Christians who are living in a pluralistic society, right? Um, we don't all share the same views, um, and those differences go all the way down in lots of cases, right? It's not, you know, a surface kind of difference or semantic difference. And given that, when we are aiming for government to do its work, the norm of ensuring justice for all, not just individuals, but also society's institutions, we have to take into account that that means institutions of different faiths and people of no faith or people who have deeply different views, rather than just work to enforce kind of and codify in law only our perspective. Um, and so that's, you know, the place where there's lots of um, discussion, negotiation, etc., to help work towards getting a broader view of what would need to be in place in order to help government actually accomplish its normative task. So basically governing people, consciously seeking to promote good government in a, in a world, in a society, in a polity that has people of many different faiths in it and none. And so Kuiper's, I, I think, original framework was in Holland. This was essentially Protestant and Catholic. Um, and he was trying to seek to govern according to uh, like allowing people of both of those faiths or of both of those traditions to live out their 
lives in their institutions interacting in, in just ways and really finding a common good, but um, without trying to square the circle, so to speak. Sure. And and I think, too, um, recognizing, say, the limits on government to enforce, um, you know, who's right or wrong on confession, right? Um, and make room for the diversity of views that might proliferate. In Kuiper's context, it was, you know, decidedly less um, diverse than we have in our multi-faith society and certainly um, have to wrestle with a different types of pluralism than we had to, like, than they had to do in the Netherlands. Um, but yeah, I mean, to sort of think about it in a way that, you know, I think one of the challenges maybe in like thinking about the pl principled pluralist approach is typically the way people think about this work to loop back to your theme on enmity is there's sort of the people who are right and there are people who are wrong, right? And we're coming from an approach that says confessionally we may believe that the people who are in disagreement with us are confessionally wrong, like truly, like damned, right? <laughs> like, but that doesn't mean we think government is authorized by God to tell them they're wrong and not make room for their institutional expressions. In fact, we would say that a principled pluralist approach would actually encourage organizations like ours to make room for that confessional difference, which gives our institutions the freedom to continue to make the case for the truth as opposed to you know a situation where well we're in favor now and we're disfavored later um, rather instead to say we're going to allow kind of the proliferation of worldviews and and negotiate on the trickier places where there's conflict between them um, but not ask government to decide whose theology is right or wrong mm -hmm. So to what this is just me kind of knowing less about that tradition than I do about Thomism, for example. Um, to what degree is there a sense within the pluralism that there is a kind of based on common grace or on natural law that there is a justice that can cross um, confessional boundaries? So like it, that there are laws that ought to be in place because they appropriately name a universal justice that that can reach across confessional boundaries yeah yeah um so i would probably use different language to talk about this typically because i'm less familiar with thomist thinking on this but um i would talk about it as there are always limits to pluralism um and so it is not a free-for-all right so when you actually think about so to use your language, you know, sort of with, within a concept of justice, right? If government is going to ensure justice for all, right, and ensure justice for all societies, institutions, that actually is going to require certain things uh, about, say, a perspective on the value of a human life, right? Um, you know, so I, it just, you know, a thought experiment we use a lot with like our interns, for example, is like talking about, you know, many of the ways we in our culture sort of shorthand this question is by thinking about it in terms of like ethics 101, right? And people will say something like, 
you know, well, those people consented, therefore it's fine. And, you know, we're often saying, well, consent is not, you know, meeting this much richer definition of justice. So, you know, by implication, yes, there is, you know, sort of this whole set of things that would go along that would actually limit pluralism. So, you know, you, you're not in a situation where it's, and anybody's definition of justice is the way it kind of nets out every time. Um, but it, it, what it protects, you know, from is government subsuming the authority to take and decide a priori for every institution what that definition necessarily is um, and prescribe it. So, uh, you know, it, it is definitely something that requires more thought than, than a simple answer. Yeah. So without that kind of groundwork laid, um, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about some of the specific things that you guys have done in the last couple of years. Sure. Um, you have, as, as we talked about, you've worked on a couple of different specific issues, which are some of the most divisive in our society. And one of the things that you've tried to do, uh, <laughs> despite really intense challenges, is to actually work across the aisle. Um, so let's talk about your work around religious freedom in the context of the, I think it was before the Obergefell decision or after, like, um, what was, what was the project and what were the challenges and victories? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we do a bunch of work with faith-based organizations, leaders, right? And we, um, work to train those organizations, leaders in their kind of aligning their organizational practices with their faith-based mission helping them understand uh, how to connect basically the fruit of their work with the root of their work and their communication to the public right often people are like we like you guys but we don't really understand you and really helping people make that much more clear and then the third thing is really equipping those organizations to be savvy about public policy right lots of these organizations are small they're busy doing their mission and they're basically finding themselves in situations where they were running up against um, LGBTQ dis discrimination claims in their most local community. Um, you know, it, if you look at a national map, 60% of the country is under LGBTQ non-discrimination ordinances at either the local or the state level. Um, and so sort of a variety of things that faith-based organizations would experience and they didn't know how to handle. So that's sort of like a precipitating thing that's chugging along in the background in our work, um, you know, over the last two decades. In, in, um, uh, the 2000s, you know, we have a whole series of things that happen, but essentially we started to see with Obergefell, with Bostock, you know, a series of court cases way before they hit the Supreme Court. So your thing about like before the Obergefell decision, yes, we started to see these things happen and the implications for faith-based organizations were really clear that, you know, whichever way the court would rule, you kind of have this it's easy to know a court decides one-sided victories a winner a loser right and in the recent court decisions around like lgbtq rights and religious freedom um you know the court has said again and again in its decision essentially there's all these other questions that the legislators need to resolve like congress do your job um, and um we basically were you know in a situation where we were looking at something that had happened in the state of Utah that had helped settle some of the conflicts between religious organizations and LGBTQ rights groups and had a discussion with a couple other organizations that we work with where we sort of said, you know, how do we 
go, how do, how do we do Utah at the federal level, right? Um, and we're able to look at um, a, a way to do that that was much bigger than what we initially um, thought. Because uh, just to be candid, like we didn't know if there were going to be LGBTQ rights groups who would talk to us about this, right? Um, but we knew that we didn't want to spend the next two decades with faith-based organizations in court, right? Like we wanted them to be free to serve. Um, and we wanted them to figure out how we were going to navigate this. And, you know, again, court decisions, one-sided victories, but also we wanted the predictability and durability of legislation that would protect everyone because in addition to kind of the impulse from faith-based organizations, most faith-based organizations don't think, and most people of faith, don't think people should be, say, losing their housing or jobs or access to credit for being gay, right? And so we knew there were real harms out there that were happening, and we were trying to figure out, like, how do we bridge this? Um, so that was sort of the beginning of uh, this project that has gone under the banner of Fairness for All um, mm -hmm. is, is the project. So Fairness for All in this, in this context is fairness sort of uh, providing protections for LGBTQ people and couples at, at the same time um, as providing protection for religious groups to make the decisions that are sort of consistent with their faith commitments. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's pretty um, precise. Um, you know, the work itself was um, really challenging, but really rewarding in trying to have conversations to, to listen to understand. Um, so, you know, our approach was not, hey, let's, you know, tell you all the ways that um, faith-based social services, um, you know, provide resources in the world and how right now the federal proposals that are sort of gay rights only proposals would, you know, make all of those services um, unable to do their work. Um, we, we, did, we didn't start there, right? We started with like, can you help us understand, right? Um, and would you be willing to have another conversation, right? And so it really was building relationships over time to get to a place where we really understood what the real needs were um, in that in that conversation before we ever set about the work of discussing what a legislative proposal for something like that would look like. So what were the, what were the conversations that you had? Like what, can you describe some of the most striking ones or the ones that gave you, that were the most surprising in the, your ability to sort of like reach across the aisle and in these very divisive issues? Yeah. I mean, first I would say that you know, these conversations, you're using the language of reach across the aisle, and these conversations were, in the beginning, not at all with legislators or, or Hill staffers, right? These conversations were with leaders of civil society organizations, right? So leaders of faith-based organizations, leaders of denominations, and leaders of LGBTQ rights groups differentiated, right? Some are just like straight up trans rights groups. Some are, you know, lesbian legal groups, things like that. Like, um, and, you know, really having clear discussions around each place where, you know, if you're thinking about proactively solving conflict, right? Places where we knew there were 
trouble spots already. So just to give a concrete example, right? Um, it, we spend a ton of time talking about foster and adoption um, because we were seeing the kinds of things that eventually turned into the Fulton Supreme Court case, right? Um, because we were working with faith-based social services and LGBTQ people were trying to foster and adopt and we were seeing these conflicts kind of happen again and again. What were those conflicts in particular? What, can you just describe for, for people who don't know the, the case? So, <laughs> so the, thank you, good reminder. Um, the Fulton case was really around um, uh, a, the city of Philadelphia um, choosing to not partner any longer with uh, a Catholic social service agency um, because they would not um, ad permit adoptions to same-sex couples, right? And, you know, in the f again, court cases, especially, you know, Supreme Court cases are decided really narrowly. So like the facts of the case really matter. So uh, just one more second on the facts of the case, right? Um, you know, in this situation, they were, you know, essentially singled out, and that's that's why the Catholic group pre prevailed in the case, um, because it was clear that their the criteria by which they were not um, able to have their contract continued was purely based on that criteria unfairly applied, um, and so the. Um, conflict, though, is much bigger than the court case, right? The conflict is um, you have the um, foster and adoption services that are contracted by governments at local, municipal, city, county levels, um, and um, arbitrary ways in which there are um, both the contracting process, the clarity around who can foster and adopt. Um, do they have a pluralist system in the sense that there's multiple providers? So for example, Catholic, you know, many Catholic organizations that provide foster and adoption services, they will not place children with a single parent family either, right? They really believe mother, father, families. And so that is the only, and you know, in, cases where you know that was happening where they were kind of living out exactly what they said they were going to do um, if that was kind of challenged in you know again one of these lgbtq non-discrimination situations there's that kind of harm there where that organization that has long held to the standard is now you know running afoul of something that has happened in their community that's been a change or you also have, you know, people who are LGBTQ folks who are being turned away, um, and you know, kind of the the feeling that goes along with that. And then, is there another option for them to, as a provider? And a whole patchwork of ways across the country that are the ways that, again, this is kind of the lowest order of government, right? You know, your county or your city or your municipality is dealing with how they're codifying who they're contracting with and to to what end um, in many cases not not systems where everyone could be served um, and so that's sort of the larger question there so you know there there's a lot of very strong feelings because you know you have faith-based organizations who you know are going to court over something that they uh, you know they're being taken to court over a way that they have shaped their work for you know a hundred years 
and you have you know an LGBTQ couple who seeks to foster or adopt being brought in front of judges and you know judges you know in the foster adoption system you know basically assuming that they're pedophiles right i mean and and so you've got these just like awful things that are happening in both cases so trying to figure out like how do we navigate that place where you know everyone's kind of being harmed and how do we figure out ways to get unstuck from that just a little housekeeping don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on itunes we'll be back with the rest of my conversation with stephanie after the break Since that time, one of the things that you've been heavily involved with and, um, you know, before as well are issues around abortion. And most recently, especially in the wake of the Dobbs decision, you've shifted to a real focus on that. Um, can you describe just what that work has been in the past and, and also since the since Dobbs? Yeah. So we've done work for, I don't know now, um, well before Dobbs, seven years probably, um, on kind of child and family supportive policy. So again, you know, I was talking about, hey, government has this responsibility to, you know, do all these things. So some of that is about, you know, caring for vulnerable families, right? So um, contributing to their flourishing, right? And so it requires, again, some work on government's part. So we have had a whole series of kind of deep theological work, research, all these people, you know, kind of related to family supportive and child supportive policies. More recently, you know, we ended up kind of intersecting in the context of a policy lab kind of situation um, with people who, you know, were very strongly in the pro-choice movement. So this is pre-Dobbs, a couple years pre-Dobbs. And you know, as we spent time listening, um, one thing we started to see is that there really was among not maybe a the autonomy movement level of the the abortion rights movement, but among kind of the grassroots level, um, people whose lives were being um, affected kind of in their communities on a day-to-day basis. Um, there was really there a, a, a pretty profound um, way of talking about abortion as like an economic decision. And, you know, in particular, bra- black and brown women in the movement who were leaders would say to us, um, yeah, h- help us get a better choice. Like, this is an economic choice, right? Um, and so for us, we started to think, okay, what is the set of things that would truly lead to family flourishing, right? Um, the, so, you know, the, then quickly follows on things like um, ways of ensuring, you know, a child supportive, uh, you know, uh, funding uh, quickly moves to things like paid family leave, right? Um, maternal health care, like those kinds of pieces. And again, this isn't a all government, all civil society, you know, but really the reality of needing both, um, sort of an all hands on deck approach, child care, you know, these types of things. And then also bringing in something that's a very consistent and has lots of continuity with kind of our work over decades, which is really about the work of faith-based organizations in that context and how government can make room for or 
you know, put barriers to the participation of those programs in providing the solutions. Um, so that kind of all came together in that. And, you know, at this point, we have, you know, a pretty robust kind of advocacy effort. Um, we've had to do a lot of work to cross um, denominational lines and denominational thinking. Um, so in this case, you know, it'd be people who on matters of theology really probably disagree with each other quite robustly, um, but really agree about the value of, of human life more broadly and trying to figure out, like, can we get to a place where we're able as a, a nation to focus our support on valuing life <laughs> um, as opposed to you know, kind of focus our support on just shutting down um, the abortion industry, right? Um, and so it, it, it's sort of a what is what is the path forward kind of approach um, that that we've been convening. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I've seen, obviously, in the pro-life movement um, has been precisely, it's kind of funny, precisely those groups that in Kuiper's time felt themselves to essentially need different you know, spheres, different silos, Catholics and Protestants. Um, some of the most profound kind of um, ecumenical work that I've seen has been, has come out of the pro-life movement, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And Kuiper, you know, interestingly enough, right, really pulled together a coalition party um, between Protestants and Catholics um, because he, um, out of, you know, kind of some of these sort of shared commitments and really a, a stand against the autonomy only way of thinking about rights, right? And, um, you know, which was really what was kind of part of the French Revolution, right? So you kind of have that thinking and that's actually what the Protestants and Catholics were able to come together around was in sort of opposition um, to that. And I, you're exactly right. That same dynamic is actually what's playing out within the pro-life kind of conversation today. Yeah. I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen this, but um, one of the things that's very exciting to me right now is just in the way that Catholics taught Protestants this can be overstated because obviously there was some Protestant opposition to abortion before Roe, but the way that Catholics really kind of galvanized Protestants and taught them in a more um, intense and thoughtful way to to think about, you know, life before birth, it seems to me that Catholics are once again kind of in this post-Roe moment uh, teaching Protestants things about sort of um, you know, it's called Catholic social teaching, which, you know, th these, these sort of wider ways of thinking about justice, where it's not just, a, it, you know, we can't rely on, you know, just shutting down abortion clinics, and then having libertarian economics, um, which is really exciting to me, just because it seems to me that like, you know, people who've been involved in pro-life work for decades, have now like, there's now like this breath, we can take a breath and be like, okay, all right, so now what what would good laws look like? We know what bad laws look like. What would good laws look like? What would good laws around abortion, but also around things like, um, you know, there's this new make childbirth free movement. Um, there's obviously different ways of trying to put together, um, as you said, you know, something that would look more like social democracy and something that would look more like civil society focused um, and faith-based organizational, you know, focused uh, work. And that seems to me to be like nobody, kind of nobody's 
uh, everyone's a little bit freaked out by it because I feel like it's it's uh, especially from the mainstream of the pro-life movement it can feel quite new and there is still this kind of residual Reaganism almost um but I just wonder whether you've seen movement in in the pro-life movement um over the last year or so in that mm -hmm. yeah no I I definitely have and I, I you know I I think one of the things that um gives me maybe some you know encouragement within the kind of broader conversation right is you know there there are ways that folks have thought about th this larger set of questions in the past um but they've been very tied to you know kind of like a benefit that you it's been tied to concepts of like dessert, right? Like, and dessert related to your contribution personally, right? To like GDP, right? Are you a worker, right? Like, um, rather than thinking about like, um, you know, mothers, um, children in, in the context of families, right? And rather, rather than thinking about folks in the context of the, the kind of multiple hats they wear, so to speak, like, yes, you're a worker in a workplace, but you're also a parent in a household, right? And um, kind of the, the constellation of responsibilities and roles that you have. So it, to, I think one of the things that has been encouraging is, you know, so over the past seven years, right, as we've been doing the work under Rachel Anderson is the person who leads our family's valued work. She founded that work for us. And, you know, within that conversation at the very beginning, you know, we were having to kind of really be clear that like work that was, you know, um, pro worker and um, pro family was pro-life like people didn't connect all those things together right and 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 i think that there are there's been a certainly growing uh way that people have started to see that rather than see it as you know uh rather than see it as like your worth for getting a benefit is because you are a worker period full stop right instead seeing like your worth in the much broader way that, you know, theologically informed, we would think about the worth, worth of a human person, but then also really seeing the full complement of uh, responsibilities and roles that, that folks are part of. Um, and so it, it becomes a way of, of um, energizing the policy responses that are available, right? As opposed to just like, well, did you work? Now you're going to get, you know, and, and, you know, are you a white collar employee who has a benevolent employer that's going to pay for paid family leave, right? Instead, it's a, hey, if, if we say this is true about what we value, what's this look like in the world? And that hasn't just been a shift with sort of advocates or even policymakers um, or even people, you know, kind of within the pro-life movement. It's also been a shift within faith-based organizations, Right, so the desire for faith-based organizations to say maybe participate in a public system in a way that, you know, for decades the approach has been, hey, we actually would like to be categorically exempt because we don't want any 
interaction with government, right? We just would like less of that if we could get it. Um, and instead to say, yeah, but doing that means like we don't actually have a way that we can provide this for our workforce or provide this, you know, and it means it limits the scope of what's available in our, you know, um, geography for the, pe the actual people we serve, right, and their families, right? So it has catalyzed a set of things that I think are um, good. Whether or not the policy making can catch up with it, you know, at the federal level, I think there's so many challenges in sort of the dynamics of Congress that, you know, like we are hopeful and we continue to work towards that, right? But we also think there's a lot of things that are creative and may happen more easily at the states in this mm -hmm. particular season. Mm -hmm. It just the way that you describe that, it kind of makes me think that it is, so it's a question of, um, you know, the pro-life movement is really good at sort of seeing the unborn child as a person who needs to be valued whether or not they've yet contributed anything, um, whether or not they're able to do certain things, whether or not they're able to, you know, have, you know, object permanence or self-knowledge or, you know, you know, their brains are finished developing, which they are not, you know, and Obviously, you know when we're, when you're talking about adult women, one does expect more <laughs> of an adult. But at the same time, there is this thing where you're just like, okay, um, if we think that the unborn child is valuable in his or in his or herself and should be supported, can't we also say that about his or her mother? Right, because, I mean, you're exactly right, because the way we think about this generally in policymaking, unfortunately, right, is, you know, it's a, it's an individual, as opposed to, this is a, this is actually a family, right, that, that needs particular protection and respect in this specific season, right? Um, yes. And it's really, I mean, it's, it was scary for me to stop thinking and talking in terms of a right to life, um, because that phrase is so powerful in the American psyche, like to say that someone has a right to life. And I, it's not a totally wrong phrase, but it does seem to me to be um, kind of casting the weight of the question in the wrong spot. Like, it's not just that, you know, this baby has a right to life. It's that, and so you, its mother shouldn't kill it. You're its mother. And therefore there's a lot more that you should do besides not kill it, you know? And so this sort of like respecting the existing relation, the, the family that exists, you know, in, in the body of the pregnant woman and the family that, you know, because we think that, that, that families are valuable and should be supported as families, um, thinking about policy that supports women and, and their children and the men in their lives, you know, it, to, the, to the maximal degree to help them all thrive like that that does seem to me to be a different model than the right to life model um i, I don't know whether that is something that you've worked through or thought about yeah it definitely resonates because you know the um the again thinking about sort of government as ha clearly government has a responsibility right to protect individuals right this is not you know like hey we're ignoring individuals in favor of you know institutions but it's just that we don't often we we this is not the only question where we often think about a rights-based autonomy-based approach and that's it right like you know rather than the reality that you know most of life is actually lived in these institutional expressions in 
including the family, right? And so we haven't structured, you know, uh, our, I mean, we, I could give you like two hours of examples. I'm like resisting the temptation to do that right now. Like we haven't given um, the, that same weight um, to thinking through what it would look like to actually take family and the responsibilities that parents have quite seriously in, you know, the ability for that baby to thrive. Right. And so that's the place where, yes, I think the shift, you know, is going to is super important. And it's why you see, you know, people of faith making choices to be advocates in their states for things like, you know, in like red states for like Medicaid expansion for pregnant women. Right. Because they're like, hey, these are these are folks who, you know, really have a real need and the need is today. Right. And like this isn't about the decision this woman at this moment is making about the life of her child. It's about her capacity to be physically well and have a physically healthy pregnancy and a postpartum period, right? And and when you think with that family frame, right, it starts to make much more sense for people on the importance of doing something like that um, in kind of in this season, which is a, which is a major shift. Yeah. And just to sort of, for listeners who aren't aware of the kind of current expansion of this, um, there was, I'm trying to get this right. I think in 2022, uh, there was an offer from the federal, federal government to expand Medicaid for the women who are eligible for it from 60 days postpartum to a year postpartum. And I think at this point, 43 or something like that states have taken them up on it or are in the process of taking them up on it, which is just spectacular. Um, the, the figure that I ran across was that four in 10 births in the US are covered by Medicaid. And that means, you know, four in 10 babies, four in 10 mothers for the first year of, you know, being a mother and for the first year of um, the, the baby's life, you know, ex utero, they're, they're covered, their healthcare is covered. And that is, you know, it's not my ideal social democratic, you know, single payer plan, um, but it's really good. <laughs> and it's something that's happened in the last year to um, kind of not as much fanfare as I think there should be <laughs> personally. <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? Because I think, you know, the, the, the impulse, right, to f put a spotlight on something is always to put a spotlight on spectacle, right? Because spectacle draws attention. And so, like, this kind of, like, work that's happening that is really transformational and is really, truly life-saving and, like, um, on so many levels, right, it's, it, there's nothing... There's no conflict that's like, you know, can be featured in this story. It's like, a, you know, isn't this a good news story? And unfortunately, there, there's there are not a lot of people out there who really want to tell the good news stories. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we at Plow do. I love that <laughs> anyway. about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and this also, these Medicaid expansions um, across, you know, again, it's, blue states and red these are you know this largely the states that are holding out are red states um for in texas's case fussy reasons for like whatever um but in general almost all red states as well as i think all blue states maybe i'm not sure what the the breakdown is there this is just like a this is a massive cross you know cross party um thing that people have 
jumped on board about, and I'm just really happy about it. Um, so I just, one of the things that has been, um, I guess, transformative for me was Leah Labresco um, used to do these things. And I think she still sort of does through her work with Braver Angels. Um, but I, I remember doing one when she was still living in New York City and um, I you know, just dropped by and she would have a conversation about abortion with cookies. So she would gather together like, you know, 12 women of, you know, wildly varying beliefs about abortion. Um, and she would make skillet cookies. She has an excellent skillet cookie recipe. And we would just like talk to each other and we would talk to each other about like, all right, what is it that you believe and why? And that it's, it can be very scary um, in part because, you know, we're so used to yelling at each other um, that, you know, putting yourself out there and saying what you believe in the face of someone you know disagrees with you is quite frightening. Um, but it's, it was very powerful when I did it. Um, is that, or have you had any, what, what have been the conversations that you've had, um, across disagreement, you know, that, that kind of disagreement in the course of doing this work? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote about this in a, um, a big compilation book for Rutledge. Um, that's like the, uh, cross-cultural religious literacy handbook or something like that, you know, one of these Rutledge texts. But the reason I mention it is because um, a lovely donor made it possible for like the entire book to be free online. So it's one of these ones that's like a berserk expensive that is now available to everyone. Well, and, we will link to that. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, you know, but within this like kind of conversations, like I, I think the piece of, you know, shaping a container like what i love about what you just described is like she set a table literally for people to have the conversation right um and you know with with a you know plan for we're gonna have a conversation about this hard thing right it those types of things presume you know that you have people at the table who are willing to listen to understand right and are willing to be patient, right? Because it's not like, hey, I'm, you know, hearing you and now I'm jumping in, right? I'll take to rebut your point, right? So, so I would just say, you know, like every one of these conversations across these lines of deep difference that like I've ever had um, have been in the kind of situation where there's, whether it's, you know, I've created the container or someone else has of, um, you know, we're going to have a conversation that could feel hard, but we want to talk about this hard thing together with the goal of listening to understand. So when I've, you know, been the person who's, you know, kind of is creating the container or inviting someone to that conversation, right? I, you know, sometimes literally, like, we'll get through, like, everything that they want to say about something, and I'll say, I'd love to talk to you. You know, I've asked my clarifying questions. Whatever, I say, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about some ways that I might see it a little differently. Do you want to do that today? And this is like literally a principle I operate by called permission to ask, which is like, you know, if they say no, I say, okay, maybe another day. And, and I've had to do that 
so many times, but what people respect and value about that, right, is, you know, I'm willing to be patient enough to ask a different time. Um, and, and so what's come of that is maybe I'm four conversations in with someone who then says to me, I think it would be important for you to know this about me, right? And then they tell me something like, I worked in an abortion clinic. I have assisted in thousands of abortions, right? Like, and, but we have had that conversation for long enough, right? That, and, and I have not been fighting them, right? Um, that they can say that as context for why there might be places we could agree or disagree, but also places where they feel like you need to understand this about me to understand why I think the things I think, right? They weren't going to tell me that in the first conversation, right? Um, whereas there's other things that are not, you know, quite so deep into the pool with people that they may say in the first conversation, or they, I, you know, I've had this conversation before where literally someone said to me, okay, you know, we've been talking about this, you know, hard thing we were working on, and they were like, I'm just curious, like, how do you feel about death with dignity? And I was like, you mean euthanasia? And he was like, no, I said death with dignity. And I was like, I heard you. <laughs> but it was like funny at that point because like the, 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 the candor in the whole conversation had, you know, made it free for us to like, be like, absolutely no, there's like no way we're on the same page about yeah, this thing. Yeah. And predictably not. Yeah. I mean, so, so the two things that I, um, have sort of like experienced in having good conversations about this is basically what you said, allowing people to opt in and making it clear that you, you don't have to, you don't have to have this conversation. I'm not going to make you, would you like to? Um, and then the other one, I forget if you told me this or if Leah told me this, I think it might've been Leah, but the idea of coming to disagreement. Oh, so, no, I talk about that all the time. Yeah. Oh, I could say it was you. Yeah. That like, totally like so you told me that probably about two years ago and it's really reframed the way that i think about these conversations and it's incredibly helpful it's not original to me at all um i was given <laughs> this gift yeah no it's the idea of achieving disagreement achieving right? disagreement right so so i've gone into conversations with like policy advocates where like we have a deep disagreement and like an active piece of legislation in congress that like we're at odds about right where i've started the conversation by thinking, saying I think we've achieved disagreement on 15% already. Like we know there's this hole, but 85%, I think we might agree, right? So can we talk about, you know, what we might be able to do together that could help get this unstuck, right? And what I've often found is, you know, naming the places where we've achieved disagreement specifically, sometimes I don't, you know, in that case, I just gave as an example, like that's, because we've actually done the work to achieve disagreement over over time. So it's not typically on the front end of the conversation, but being able to say, I think we've achieved disagreement about this. Like, what do you think? Right, because sometimes literally the response people have had to that sentence to me is, I think so, but, right? And then they have a thing where like they're back at, like they're really trying to find the place where we might actually agree. Um, and like in that case, I started to talk about like, so in that case, right, we came to the end of the conversation and one of the, you know, kind of advocate people, you know, said, I actually think we agree on more than 85%. 
I, w I agreed with you at the beginning when you said there was 15 that we had achieved disagreement on, but having been through the whole conversation, I actually think that's smaller. And I agreed, like we, we had definitely come to greater agreement about the things even at the beginning that we thought we would had achieved disagreement about it before. But it is a wonderful way to make room for someone and say, you know, essentially like, okay, we, then let's not pour all our energy in here to try to deal with that. Or to say, do you, like the, the reflection of like, do you agree, gives them an opportunity to tell you, no, actually, I think it's 45% or, uh -huh. you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe um, concretely so what some of those um, policy uh, victories or, or like the actual work that you've been able to push forward with people who with whom you initially disagreed oh, quite sure. strongly on? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'll just pick a recent one um, as an example. Right. So um, when um, the Dobbs case happened right there, well, I'll, I'll pick two, right, because they both actually were precipitated by Dobbs. Um, so um, when the Dobbs case happened, right, in um, the kind of uh, Supreme Court's kind of, you know, various uh, ways that they talked about the case to the public, um, there was this little thing raised by um, Clarence Thomas that really concerned the LGBTQ community that their marriages would be in jeopardy. Right, so something that had already been, um, you know, made law of the land by virtue of the court's decision, but not um, codified through Congress's kind of legislative process, right? So really quickly, there was this impetus for the Respect for Marriage Act to codify same-sex marriage protections as the law of the land, right? And it passed the House very quickly, and it passed the House with 47 House Republicans supporting it, and it had no religious freedom protections in it whatsoever, right? And then it went to the Senate. Um, and, you know, many people were shocked how many members of the House who were Republicans supported the Respect for Marriage Act, but nonetheless, that's what was on the table. And um, we were able to work with, you know, essentially the same groups of advocates uh, within the LGBTQ community who we'd been working on the larger Fairness for All project with. We had nothing about marriage in Fairness for All. Like that, that was like totally outside of that project. But we were able to work with those advocates and also um, with senators who were coming and basically because of the work we'd done on Fairness for All, asking for our advice on their religious freedom thinking about what what would need to be specifically spelled out if the law was actually going to codify the the full decision right because the decision also again i said this thing at the very beginning about like you know the court will say something that's essentially like and all these other serious concerns that need to be upheld you know kind of thing that are legitimate right and but the court can't do anything about that because it's something case the case the end, for them yeah. right um that you know has to decide a victor and a loser like we're not legislators so you know it so basically you know the this the group of senators were trying to figure out if you know if we're going to do this what would need to be in place right and so we were able for religious to, freedom protection for religious freedom protection specifically around marriage right um so again it doesn't accomplish the whole Fairness for All project, which has, you know, all kinds of other components, you know, housing, you know, I could go on and on. But this is really just Visitation about marriage. And, stuff, right? yeah. and so, um, you know, we were able to have like really robust conversations to kind of get to that place where, 
um, you know, we were giving advice about what those things should look like, how to strengthen them in ways that made it more clear um, what needed to be included, um, you know, as matter of findings. And, you know, in the end, there were, so Congress did adopt the Respect for Marriage Act through the Senate's action, and then the House, um, you know, came alongside and supported the Senate version of the Respect for Marriage Act with the religious freedom protections in it. Um, and it really is like, it's the greatest expansion of religious freedom protections since 1993. Um, and it provides a giant, you know, through federal protections for LGBTQ folks, a pretty massive, because if you think about all the protections that have been accorded to LGBTQ people, like they're at the federal level, they're only being done through court decisions, right? Not, not any of this has been sort of codified through a legislative process. Um, so they're super expansive in what they've been able to accomplish. And then I, just the second one, I can be briefer. Um, so also in the wake of the Dobbs decision, um, one piece you know, was to try to close some um, kind of loopholes uh, within um, protections for pregnant workers. So it's a piece of legislation. It's just all happening at the same time. So you can imagine you know, kind of the frenzy pace that we were working at here. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's like, like right at the end of the year last year. So, um, but the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. And really, this was a place where you know, communicating um, the, the importance of kind of those basic protections for workers, things like the ability to go to a doctor's appointment, so like some scheduling stuff, right? And the ability to like have a stool or extra water or extra bathroom breaks or stuff like that, right? And, you know, legislation that actually made sense in the real world where like conversations would happen between employers and employees, right? Um, as like a means by which to make it happen. So there were not kind of some of the, the gray areas that had been put in place by kind of earlier attempts to do this kind of thing. Um, and so that was another place where like it was just hugely important in that conversation to to um, be able to communicate both with legislators, uh, uh, you know, kind of from both parties, but then also with advocates um, on, you know, kind of the particulars of what the legislation would actually entail um, and just kind of address the real concerns that people had so folks were able to get to a yes rather than sort of having fears about what it might do or not do be the reason that they were just a categorical no right um but that required people you know like rachel anderson right really working to help people hear each other and convening conversations and tables where people could do that and ask their real questions and say their real concerns and have those things be taken seriously um and then really investigated you know um and like real answers given so when you know you had legislators who you know typically would not, um, you know, because maybe they're Republicans, would not typically support a piece of legislation like that, come out so strongly for it, right? They could do it because the concerns that they had had um, had been satisfied. So that's a really interesting one. And I think incredibly fruitful. Uh, things like that are, going. I think, going to be incredibly fruitful. So obviously what you're talking about is drawing together something that's more typically thought to be a left or democratic um, platform plank, which is sort of worker protection rights and union movement stuff, even stuff that, you know, typically is thought to, not thought to be part of the union movement. And then also stuff that's good for 
you know, pregnant women, which this is one of these things where like, it's, it's difficult for, um, you know, I, I think I know so many people on the left who like are very much in favor of sort of protections for women's health. Um, but when that, but, but you know, it's, it's scary for them because they think that that means um, that, you know, when we talk about women's health, that means abortion restriction, which it does. But at the same time, like the fact that we do mean abortion, like we do mean like we need to make this, um, we need to sort of tra transform the world, set the word, the world works such that it's easier to be pregnant so that pregnant women are um, taken care of properly, that they're able to sort of not be subject to the, the sort of harshness of, um, a, you know, a brutal workplace. Um, that's something that could allow people on the right to see that like things that are more union movement-y are in fact in line with their values, even if they didn't realize it. Is that kind of what you saw? I think that there are many opportunities for folks to think outside of the narrow categories that they have put themselves into when, when folks step back and think about human beings in the context of institutional and associational life, right? That we all bear you know, different roles and responsibilities in society, right? And um, so it's not sufficient to solve, say, a childcare crisis by saying, well, we've got X number of kids, so we need to find X number of seats so we can get those kids' bots in those seats, right? And as the, like, the way we think about how to do this, right? Um, and so to me, you know, something that I'm, uh, longing for and I continue to be a hopeful person because I you know <laughs> as a person of faith and a person who you know is Calvinist enough to like um, you know believe in the doctrine of common grace right I really do think that like the creativity to think outside of kind of the well-worn grooves of let's just fight the other side um, is really possible I, I do think that one of, and you know, we've been on about this uh, as an organization, you know, the whole time. I've been at CPJ since 2009, and like, you know, this is something that we've been on about since 2009, right? For people of faith who, you know, are tired of the toxic stuff in politics, who just want to sit on the sidelines, you know, because it's kind of like, hey, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out because it's ugly in there. Like, you know, I, Unfortunately, right, that's that's the posture of someone who is comfortable and who is not asking a broader set of questions about, like, the conditions in which their neighbor is being asked to live out their life, right? Um, and so, you know, it is super important to invest in the context of faith-based institutions, right, and our communities, right? Like, so you've heard me say 10 times, like we work with leaders of faith-based organizations, like the quality and character and substance of those organizations matters tremendously, even apart from government, right? And what they're able to provide, right? But no one who is living in America is unaffected by the public policy climate uh, at the federal all the way down to the most local level, right? So um, the, the, the shift that I think 
needs to happen among our citizenry, right, and particularly among Christian citizens, you know, is not sort of a wholesale adoption of like, hey, we need to just decide we're on team X or team Y, um, but giving team X or team Y an incentive to think more capaciously, you know, because right now it's kind of like narrow because we're kind of, you know, lots of folks are just like, just tell me the answer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me yeah. what my side says to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's really unfortunate because it, it, that's not going to help us lead into the complexity that exists right now and is desperately needed by our neighbors. And it's also, I mean, just sort of something that a, a lot of um, Christian conversations about politics are happening now is lighting on is a kind of insistence on leaning into enmity for the sake of clarity. And also, you know, in some cases, leaning into enmity because, you know, you're sort of philosophically a Schmidian, which is not a good thing to be. Um, but even if you're a Schmidian, you can't be a Schmidian within the polity. Like that doesn't, that sure does not work. Um, so even if you believe that like, you know, politics is constituted not on friendship or on shalom as I believe it is, but on, you know, through the experience of enmity with an outsider, we can't do, we can't make you know, people who are our fellow citizens, the outsiders against whom we define ourselves so that we know who we are. We can't do that because that's not, that that will break a polity apart. And so figuring out how not to be outsiders to each other and how not to use each other in order to define ourselves as, to, to use each other as enemies in order to know who we are, that seems to me to be incredibly crucial and that seems to me to be the kind of work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you. And yes, I think, you know, I wanted to just say like yes and amen to what you just said. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Grateful for that. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for this. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye, Stephanie. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Sora Bamari and Matt Sitman about friendship and enmity across political differences. <laughs>